So we sat together this morning, together, I would say, for the first time as a group, as this group, and this configuration, and this day, and this moment, it's a new year, but of course, time is just a convention, it's just a concept. In fact, if we think back, I don't know when time was first invented. <laughs> I mean, the the um, calculation and registration of time, I don't know how old that is. But I'm sure that our ancestors, the far away ancestors, had no concept of time. They just lived and did their work and looked for food and kept kept their families together and passed away. And there's no record of them, maybe except their bones. So we are so caught in time, but we're also caught in concepts. And maybe time is the most obvious one. We're having a new year in the West, but there are many new years around the world. Um, there's a new year in Asian countries, and even those years are not completely on the same moon day. I'm not 100% sure, but there are different new year celebrations. And having said that, today is Christmas, did you know? In the Orthodox Church, in the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Church, I know in Russia, and maybe in Ukraine, you'll note, just changed their Christmas to uh, co coincide with NATO countries' Christmas. Because today, sorry? No. Anyone? I'm laughing, okay. Because today is Merry Christmas, so I want to wish our dear Russian friends um, here in Ontario a very Merry Christmas. And everywhere. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wishing Merry Christmas to all beings everywhere, even if they want to point a gun at you. Isn't that the nature of developing wholesomeness? In the Metta Sutta itself, we are told 
to send metta to all beings, even if they're hostile or even if they have violent intentions towards us. Can we hold a, a good feeling towards them? Very difficult. That's why we practice. So beyond the conventions, it's really good for us to practice happy and merry feelings to everyone as much as possible every day, not just wait for New Year. I know for myself, I had a lot of doubts about some people that in this area that were very hostile to us when we first established the hermitage here. This is a kind of Bible belt sort of part of the, the rural, this part of rural Ontario is, is like that. And somebody actually ran up to our property when the, the temple was being built and was yelling at the builders for building it. <laughs> I don't think that they actually knew what it was going to be, but the fact that we were building something rather large was very disturbing. And so I went for a walk with this person in our forest, and I said to her, I'm so sorry that something which is bringing joy to a lot of our community is making you sad and upset. And it did, it, it helped to deflate her anger. And since then, we've had some good communication. But you have to work at these things. It isn't good to build walls and keep walls up even towards people who have a lot of bad feeling towards us. And the reason for that is because it just perpetuates the hatred it perpetuates ill will, it perpetuates suffering. I think what we want to do so much in this practice, the reason that many of us started it in the first place was probably because the perpetual suffering that we were experiencing in life was unmanageable. And the Buddha has given us these wonderful tools to manage, not only to manage, but to free ourselves from this suffering. I want to emphasize the importance of paying attention to our suffering. And as one of you mentioned before, you didn't want to take refuge because you felt that that would be a denial of the suffering. So quite the opposite. We don't deny suffering. This teaching is all about the Four Noble Truths. It's, it hinges on the Four Noble Truths. It circles the Four Noble Truths. They are the beginning and end of the path to awakening. We cannot, if we deny suffering, that's what storks, is that what storks do? They put their heads in the sand and they hide their heads, bury their heads in the sand. We don't want to do that. We want to face yeah. the reality, whatever we want, we have to face in life. Ostriches. And it's 
Ostrich, thank you, Norman. Shame on me. I'm mistaking a stork for an ostrich. <laughs> anyway, I don't think I've ever met an ostrich. But I've met a few storks. So what's familiar to us is what we know and understand deeply. And what we know and understand deeply can be a teaching for us. That's why we want to know our suffering, because we want to know the true condition of our, our being. What are we? Do we know what we are? Do we know who is this I? Who are we? We do start to know when we meditate. And meditation is a way of following the middle way. Meditate means comes to the middle, but it also means to ponder and contemplate, to study, to know deeply. And the deep knowing is by quieting the mind, but it's not any kind of a mind that can meditate. It has to be a mind that is still, that is quiet, that where the ego falls flat on its face, so to speak, because there's no one there, but we have to discover that. So by the mind becoming silent and going towards the silence, then we can find the space between our thoughts, the space between the breaths, the ending of thought, the ending of a breath. What is inside that ending is to know that arising and the ceasing of it, to know how the mind stops and where it stops. Is there a where? It's not a place. It's just into the emptiness of how things really are. Just what is. With what is without our insertion of a self into everything. We insinuate our egos into all our experience. But I don't think that, of course, we, we seem to learn this or we gain this as we get older because I don't think babies do it as much or, or very small children. And maybe that's why we are very, we get very fond, easy to be fond of them. It's difficult to hate a baby, isn't it? Because they don't seem to be as molded or as set in that self-view as older beings are, where it becomes, you know, when children start saying mine, it's mine, you know, the toy, <laughs> mine, me. And then we get stuck there forever. That's what we have to overcome and let go of more and more is that creating this centeredness around a being that is not real. It's, a, it's just a creation. Taking refuge is actually a way of giving that up or beginning to give that up. Because what we're looking for refuge in is something that is true. And this self is not true. But to get perspective on it, we have to empty the mind of all its concepts. 
and standing in the middle, the middle of this timelessness where time is no longer what we're fixated on, self we're not fixated on, we're trying to gain access to that deepest recess within ourselves where these concepts don't insinuate themselves and where we can abide without concept. And that can be scary because it's unknown. But that's exactly what's needed to reflect in the mirror of emptiness is to see the nothingness of all that we hang on to. And the reason that it's nothing is because it is impermanent. It has no substance in and of itself, and it's not what we are. So when we're looking for answers to our questions, the most beautiful answer is the silence. I was reflecting recently in fact, it was a week ago, we had a gathering here, and I, I reflected on how when I first met my teacher in India, the great mendicant sage, and when I first, really, I, I had already met him, but when I first came to his temple to spend time there, and I was so happy to be able to visit with him again and I came in with my mind filled with questions and all I met sitting in his presence was silence absolute silence my mind couldn't find a single a single thing to hang itself on it was just empty just complete peace a lovingness a field of Empty, compassionate peace. And I sat there, and of course he found the whole thing very amusing. And he teased me, and he said, do you have any questions? But he knew perfectly that I was bamboozled and couldn't ask a thing. When we encounter that silence in another being, it's quite profound. And I had the inkling right then that I wanted that. I wanted to know that. How do you, how does the mind go to that kind of space where it's no longer grasping for the next hit or for the next exciting experience or the next vacation or the next wonderful friend that will influence our life? So the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are, the revelation of that silence within us is a profound, most profound knowing, an awareness of truth that each of us can bring forth from within us. That would probably be the most fruitful and most beneficial blessing that we could know. To know the possibility of that, the potential of that seed bearing fruit within us is truly a, a treasure. That's why we come here, we want this. The world doesn't have it. 
Nothing of the world really has it. That's why we go to the silence. We have these yearnings, these questions. We want freedom. And we can see that whatever you get in the world, it never satisfies us. So the Buddha taught us anicca, dukkha, anatta. So everything is impermanent. It's suffering. It's unsatisfactory. And it's empty of any self. <laughs> then to really learn that and know it, we have to find that space within us where we can see it and realize it directly. And this path of practice is just that. It's a practice of taking refuge in that truth, knowing that that possibility exists and training the mind more and more to realize it, to taste it. So we might be on the mountains, so to speak, or crossing the desert. And we have to keep walking. We know that there is an oasis to be found. It's within our reach. And we follow the directions. We follow the Buddha's instructions, realizing that whatever we pick up from the world is anicca, dukkha, anatta. And then then whatever we experience in our meditation, if it's anger, know it for what it is. If it's grief, know it for what it is. If it's joy, know it for what it is. Because even the joy is impermanent. It's not who we are, and it's empty. And that's what upeka is really about, that state of balance where we're neither taken aback or enthralled by a excitement or happiness, nor are we deflected and downtrodden by some horrific loss. But all of these experiences, we take them, we receive them, we know them for what they are, and we keep walking through that desert. It's as if it, there's a desert. The world is full of what? It's full of greed. It's full of hatred. It's full of beings that are misled, confused, misdirected, who do not understand the importance of purifying the mind. And in fact, will use their, their skills, their functions, their abilities, their talents, their, their strength of body and mind to gain things in the wrong way. To satisfy the senses in exaggerated ways, as if all of that would somehow bring some form of permanent happiness. But it's a fiction. It's a theater. It's not the way to the knowing of that which can really fulfill us. And we're here for that. But in order to understand what is true, we have to empty ourselves of what is not true. That's why we work with the hindrances, 
It's just like here in the monastery, we do a lot of cleaning. Some people come here and they think we're obsessive cleaners. <laughs> you know, Ajahn Chah himself said that you can tell the quality of a monastery by how clean the toilets are. So we have a few toilets here and we do spend a lot of time cleaning, cleaning the buildings, the toilets, the windows, the floors, everything, our clothing, our shoes, our bodies. But the mind has to be cleaned. If the mind is not clean, you could have a very beautiful, spacious hall, lovely furnishings, great comfortable mats and cushions to sit on, a fabulous shrine, and all the rest of it. You could have the nicest robes in the world, the cleanest looking shaved head and all of that. But if the mind is impure, what is the use of all that adornment? They're just extras. We really have to take care of the mind. And the care of the mind is exactly that. It's just the way we care for the buildings. We want them to be as clean as if the Buddha were about to walk in, the Buddha himself is coming. You get excited. Wow, let's make this place really beautiful. But then we want the Dhamma. Well, the Dhamma can only come through the mind. That's the entry point. It's The mind is where it's in the heart. How does the Buddha, how does the Dhamma, Buddha being the Dhamma, and the Sangha enter into the heart? That has to be open. An open heart is nothing less than a heart that is awake, awake to the truth. So our heart might not be as open as we would like, and that's why we practice to open it more and more. And the way of opening it is to be real about what's in front of us. This hurts. This person has been mean, un unfriendly, hostile. What do we give back to that? What are we used to giving back? Let's not learn from what the world is doing. Kill, fight, destroy, annihilate, ignore, throw a grenade. You know, a wrong word can be just as damaging to a being as if you were throwing a bomb. I don't mean the physical, I mean it's a relational bomb. It's an emotional bomb, if, if that word applies. It's a heart bomb. It's destructive. Why do we carry around hateful feelings? And then we come to sit and we make our cushion and our sitting place and our shrine look gorgeous, but we're quite ready to throw bombs at our neighbors or at people that don't treat us very well or anyone who comes here and has a critical view of how we do things. We don't want them to come back. Well, these are not friendly feelings. These are not conducive to a mind that is peaceful, forgiving, rooted in, in the Dhamma, rooted in wholesomeness, 
rooted in purification of the heart and in the opening of the flower of the heart to the sun. The sun. Well, the sun. What is the sun? If you make the Dhamma like the sun, does it choose? Does it only shine on nice people? It shines on everyone. Even if a fly and the garbage gets the sun. And the ticks that bite us and make us sick, their moms think that they're the best creature in the world. So even when a tick bites us, we, we don't want to take it off and kill it. We have these special new tweezers that you can pick them off without just taking the head. We try to care for our environment, but the care of the mind, the same kind of care is not to destroy the goodness within us, even in the slightest way. So we take all these precepts. Do you know the Buddha describes the path in a nutshell? Sila, samadhi, panya. You think that, oh, all this precept stuff, just formality at the beginning, it's the core of the whole thing. It's our, our map, our guideline. It's our, our BPS, our Buddha positioning system. Without precepts, we're lost. We're in, really in a desert, a desert there where there's no oasis we will ever reach. But if we have precepts, it's like cleats on your feet. You can walk anywhere because you walk in virtue. People can bomb you, but they will never kill you. They cannot destroy because there's no you. They cannot destroy the truth that you hold through the purification of your heart. That's refuge. That is safety.